It's a well-known fact that good sleep leads to a happier life. Okay, maybe that's not a fact fact, but don't you just feel amazing after a great night's sleep? Like the first night back in your own bed after traveling. It's time to demand more first night back kind of sleep. Stop tossing and turning and talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more. Sure, we have 30 seconds to tell you that drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. But then what? Well, there is a nice piece of stock music playing behind me that a talented composer worked really hard on. So let's enjoy it. Wow, almost overshadows the saving big when you switch to progressive parts. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Hey, hey, my next guest is Amy Waterman. And Amy uh, comes to us from the world of love, dating, marriage, relationship uh, work. And it's just such a universal um, deal that all of us humans go through, uh, being in love and marriage and, and dating. And, and she just brings some incredible perspective to those uh, components of our life. And the history of dating she discusses, it's mind-blowing to me and marriage and compatibility. Um, I think really crucial topics that are very important for all of us to know and to learn about. And so Amy is, is bringing a, a really interesting perspective to it. And so uh, today's podcast, you know, you're going to jump into uh, the beginning of our conversation and we're just going to roll from there. So uh, please enjoy my discussion with Amy Waterman. You were telling me about your adventures, and I was like, "Wow, this is a well-traveled person." This is like <laughs> I, I didn't even know that about Scotland, by the way. The what, what was that again? Hogmanay or Hogmanay? Oh, Hogmanay! Crazy! It's Lots of drunk Scotsmen and kilts. <laughs> really? Wow! Yeah, that's crazy to me. And they they uh, border off. There's a. I mean, this was back in. Um, it would have been 1998, I think. So they 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 put big kind of uh, fences around a big part of the city, and you got to buy tickets to get. And I was really lucky; I did find short-term work at a at a coffee shop inside, and so I didn't have to buy tickets. And I ended up being there right for the chaos. And I'd never seen crowds like that. Uh, everybody, and well, the funny thing I really laugh at was that. When New Year's Eve comes and then it's the new year, uh, the tradition is that basically anybody who wants to kiss you can kiss you, which is great. Except there are, you know, I don't even know how many people there. And for the next week or two after Hogmanay, everybody, everybody was sick. Every, you know, teenager, (laughs) 20s, I mean, everybody had colds after that. (laughs) What is this tradition of like any, everybody could kiss you? Like, what is that? I don't know. You know, I didn't stay long enough in Scotland to really feel like I had much of a much of a grip <laughs> on the culture. I actually was living in a hostel with uh, Aussie. That's actually why I ended up going to Australia, because I really, there was yeah. a lot of Aussie nurses that had come up there. The NHS is a great employer of uh, foreign nurses and foreign doctors. And so they were all up there working, having a great time. And I, I just really had a connection with them. And so I thought, I must go to Australia someday. And, and I did. 
Wow, that's amazing. You know, you know it's funny. We're going to roll off of this whole kissing thing because, one, that was weird. Uh, and, two, <laughs> I don't know. That just really like, hey, I don't know you, but, you know, this is what we do uh, type of thing. So well, um, even that, it's I'm going to be honest, it's um, it's just what everybody does. They don't think about it. And they're all very, very drunk. I think we can't forget the fact that they're very drunk. Well, yeah. And everybody's very <laughs> cold. And I mean, the, the, the pressure of the bodies. I, you've probably been in large crowds before that are drunk and rowdy yes. and get squashed. And sometimes your feet get picked up and you get carried along. And this was oh. Hogmanay. Uh, yeah, New Year's Eve, everything going wild. I didn't really feel the need to go back, but I can see why everybody goes there. It's, it's completely unlike anywhere else, especially too, you know, you're talking about Edinburgh, you're talking about this ancient city with this right. really there you know you walk on uh, there's arthur's is it arthur's mound i keep forgetting it's been so long mm -hmm. now where king arthur stood to survey his kingdom and you think there is there's bones under the ground here in the ice there are layers and layers of history and it would be castle too you know it's they have ghosts you know there's a ghost walking yeah yeah so there's something, I don't want to say feral, but there's something wild and powerful and bigger than us small, modern human beings. And I think that's what Americans miss so much. So one of the things you really notice once you've spent time in Europe, and then you've spent time in the Americas, including South America, is that you can feel the history under your feet in Europe. You can feel almost the layers of sediment underneath your feet but when you come to the americas especially you know like i in rural areas nature covers up everything nature always comes back if yeah. they take away a house boom it's all going to be trees and and grass there and so nature is a real big force here that kind of makes humans seem like temporary people you know on the surface but in europe there is such a sense of being just one tiny person in thousands of years of human history. You really get that feeling there. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up partially in Europe, actually. So, um, and I was born in Germany. I've lived there twice and been all around Europe. So I get that. I do totally identify with kind of the ancient feel of Europe. And, you know, I mean, America's not old. You know, I mean, it's really not an old place. But Europe is super old. And then you get into like Asia and places like China and stuff. And it's like super, super old, you know? And uh, you know, so I totally identify with what you're saying uh, with that. Like you feel it underneath you. It's like very present. You know, it's like when I lived in Germany, it's like I could see, you know, the, the bullet bullet holes in the buildings. That stuff wasn't fixed. It wasn't yeah. like, hey, let's uh, let's cover this up. You know, it's just there. You know, it's just a reminder of the history. I have a great story. So where I lived in England, uh, we we lived um, right on the English Channel. And when Germany, during the Blitz, Germany would come and they'd mm -hmm. bomb London and then they'd go back, go back home. But, you know, they were running out of fuel and bombs were heavy. So if there weren't any bombs, they dropped over London. They just dumped them out in the countryside before they flew over the channel back home. And so you would go for walks in the woods and you'd see these massive bomb craters. <laughs> and it was a great uh, photo I saw of, of my street where I was living. And here's all the, the houses that I, they're still there today. 
And then there's two houses that are rubble because they got dropped, they got bombed by one of the falling bombs. And but if wow. you and so then I, I took a picture of the street today, turned it black and white and transposed it. And you can see like today is exactly like that day, however many decades ago, except these houses here have been rebuilt and back that day several years ago that was bombed. That is recent history. I, I, one of the struggles I have actually with American culture is it's so uh, anything that happened last year is old news. Well, actually, <laughs> anything that happened 50 years ago is still very much alive and present. And you can see it when you see the bomb craters. But we simply, we've never had that sort of... Um, sustained attack on American soil. We had 9-11 and Pearl Harbor really were, were one-off situations, whereas Europe has had not just, we're not even talking the first and second world war, they've had thousands of years of fighting. You know, there has been right. tribes moving in and out. Warfare and the effects of warfare are very alive. This is why I love the European Union. I love the commitment to peace. Um, so when I think about things like, you know, with what I do, uh, so I, you know, talk to you about kissing, you know, and I do dating and relationship advice. And so many people say, think that there's rules, right? So you need to, um, men need to be feminine, men need to be masculine, men need to ask her out, women need to do this. What they don't realize is that these are all um, moments in time. They're a cultural snapshot of exactly where we are. And none of this uh, is the way we are as men and women. None of this is built into us biologically. It's simply culture. And luckily, we can change culture right. if we don't like it. So what got you into this? So this is, you know, really the, the meat, I think, uh, is what I think is going to be really interesting for my listeners is because love and dating, you know, it's pretty universal. I mean, it's something that the majority of human beings have experienced or are experiencing or will experience. And it's something I, I can I could see people listening going, man, I got to I got to hear what this woman has to say about this, because this is something I'm going through and I got to I got to get a grip on it. So before we get into that, what why did you get into this particular path? Well, so I travel the world uh, wanting to be a writer and I was thinking I was going to go into travel writing and uh, I just wasn't good enough at what I was doing. And so I got my master's degree and I went to New Zealand and I tried to get work in agriculture, couldn't. And I ended up working for a small internet company that was selling info products to Americans. So uh, they would find out something that people were really struggling with. They would commission somebody to research that, write a book solving the problems, and then they would um, sell it online. And so I got involved there and I loved it because I got to write books. Uh, and one of their products was a dating and relationships product. And so that was really what got started. And this was this was the Sex in the City era where every mm -hmm. single woman wanted to be Carrie Bradshaw. And I was very much affected by that um, that vision, you know, of of being this single professional, you know, wee woman who goes out and lives life and then writes about it and offers yeah. advice. I just loved that. And so to have that opportunity, that was great. And that was how it got started. And so that was back in 2005. And so I have been uh, researching and writing uh, for, that's a long time now, uh, nearly 15 <laughs> years now <laughs> on yep. that subject. 
And what I find makes me different from a lot of the uh, a lot of the other dating coaches is that I came into it from a background of what I was one of the main products I worked on was um, how to how to fix broken marriages. So when marriages are breaking down, how do you get them back to healthy again? So when I look at dating advice, I'm immediately looking at it from the perspective of these two people get together, they get married, then their marriage breaks down. And then they're probably wish they never met each other in the first place. So how can we look at dating from a backwards view of can what happens when these people get married and have kids and start to struggle? Are they really picking each other for the right reasons? Is this going to be a good match later down the line? A lot of dating coaches were not interested in that. What they want to give you is they want you to be attractive to the opposite sex. They want you to get mm. lots of attention and interest in the opposite sex. And for somebody who's dating for fun and pleasure, they're the perfect coaches. But my interest <laughs> is I want people to find the right person for a lifetime of love. And that means looking ahead to thinking when you get married, you guys are going to have problems. Are you going to have the skills to stay together? So that's my what makes me different. So let me ask you about current dating culture or what is your um, kind of take on how dating has progressed with technology and all of these apps and things of that nature? Well, I recommend everybody. So to me, looking at dating, like imagine looking at dating standing in Europe, right? We talked about, you know, these thousands of years of human right, history. Right. Well, love and marriage and relationships has thousands of years of human history. So let's not look at for, as from the American perspective, which is what is current now and forget it, the past. Let's look at it as a historical phenomenon informed by what's come before. And the book to give you that perspective, you don't have to go to Europe. All you have to do is read Stephanie Kuntz's book, Marriage, a History. And mm -hmm. she's a historian and she goes through the history of marriage. And what you will find is that a lot of the advice today given to people about marriage really only dates back to the 1950s. The 1950s was a so-called golden age of marriage, which has had the male breadwinner and the female mm -hmm. homemaker. And unfortunately, today, people seem to think that's what marriage is. That's what marriage is supposed to be. And that's what the marriage has been throughout human history. No, that was maybe, what, 15, 20 years of the history of marriage? Of right. A, you know, several thousand, you know, thousands of year old institution. So no, the male breadwinner and the female homemaker is simply one tiny slice of the kinds of marriages that human beings have created throughout history. For example, another interesting phenomenon, if you read the literature, they say, well, step, um, step families are really new. We really don't know how step families work. We don't know what makes them succeed. Because, the, you know, there's just not the research. These mixed blended families are really kind of a new phenomenon. Except that's not the case historically. Historically, there was a lot of divorce. There was a lot of having children out of wedlock. There was a lot of remarrying and these big blended families. But, of course, we don't have any research from back then. This is a long, long time ago. So yeah. no matter what permutation of a relationship you see today, there's been a precedent to it. You just have to go back if you want to go back to that right historical period. Right. Now, but... Are we using, you know, that 1950s framework just because it's so recent for people with marriage? Is that why we think people are using that framework? And do you think that it's changing? Well, I, so I am one of those people who thinks everything is political. 
And the 1950s framework had a really good, politicians loved it, uh, religious folk loved it, it was very stable, it, um, it promoted a view of our country and our culture as, um, you know, everybody was impressed by it, right? It, it, had a, it had good marketing, that's what I want to say. That had really good marketing and it served a lot of people's interests. However, it didn't necessarily work for the people who were in the relationship. So one of the lovely changes that I think we are so lucky today is the move towards more egalitarian relationships, particularly among uh, uh, same-sex couples. Right. The, the really, um, the, the male breadwinner and the female homemaker was one of the least equal relationships you could get. Those two people were each stuck in such severe gender roles that they didn't get to live to their full potential. Whereas couples, especially same-sex couples today, they don't know what a relationship should look like. They don't know what roles they should automatically fall into. So they have to negotiate. They've got to talk it out. They've got to figure out what works best for them. So they invent it off the fly. That is where I would like to see marriages and relationships go. Instead of bringing in gender roles from decades ago, I would like to see more and more couples invent their own relationship that suits them and that suits their interests and that brings out their full potential rather than thinking, uh, I have to stay home with the kids or right, you know, right. he's got to earn all the living and I can't earn more than he does. So my the biggest challenge facing dating today, in my view, is the gender police. Because in no <laughs> other area of life is it okay to force us into outdated gender roles. But as a man, I'm sure you have had men tell you a lot of dating shows, don't be a wuss. You got to be the man. She's not going to respect you if you're not really <laughs> masculine. We women get told all the time, especially strong women, you're not feminine enough. He's not going to like you if you don't defer to him and if you don't make him feel like a man. All that stuff is taking us back, way back in time, and it needs to go. Because I agree. the totally agree. relationships are equal. Yeah. Totally agree. Actually, you know, it's funny. I've been married for um, 15 years, and my wife and I have never had a traditional uh, gender role relationship in terms of, like, responsibilities and this and that. I've never felt like I had to be a certain type of guy. Um, in fact, I do all the cooking in the family. I do a lot of all the house cleaning and stuff. And my wife often mainly does a lot more of the working outside. She does a lot of the yard work and stuff for it. And it was never like, oh, well, you know, I want to do that. You want to do it. It's just more like, that's what she liked doing. It's what I like doing. And we never told each other, well, well, maybe we should switch this because, you know, I should be outside in, in the front of the yard where people see me. When I'm not at work, you know, raking the yard and cutting the you know, lawn, it's we've never had that. And I'm always very grateful for that because it's allowed us to kind of stretch and be whoever we at, well, grow into the people we've we've wanted to become throughout the years for that. So I actually, you know, my parents had a pretty traditional gender role relationship, but they never said to us, oh, you should have this. I think they're just like, hey, you got to do whatever works for your marriage, what works for your relationship, and not be st stuck into a certain pattern that 
a lot of people, I said, a lot of people still prescribe to that. The woman stays home, the man works. I just think it's terrible, honestly. Unless that's something I guess you just really want to do, like you love it. I'm not sure that I see a lot of people wanting to do that, though, at this point. No, what I really struggle with is the fact that it's a great way to shame people. You're not enough. You're not man enough. You're not woman enough. Nobody's going to like you because you're not, uh, you don't have wealth and power or the woman. Mm -hmm. You don't have, you're not feminine and girly enough. It is a really great way of shaming people at the place where they're most sensitive at all, of all, which is their feeling of being lovable. And I think it's actually, I think it's terribly unethical to make people, any single person, feel like they're not enough because they don't conform to certain uh, old-fashioned gender roles or gender ideals. And yet that's what's happening today in the modern dating scene. You just go on YouTube. I, I you know, I'm on YouTube, I'll just say, and uh, I love going and looking and seeing what other people are doing and saying and what i see is a lot of the same old stuff saying that mm. if you don't follow the script no one's gonna love you and you only have yourself to blame well it's interesting uh one of my uh clients is a licensed clinical psychologist and she's doing some work with uh a brand new uh it's a dating app um i'm not sure i could say who it is as brand new and i don't i haven't asked her about like if i could talk about it but in generalities, I'll talk about it. And basically, I thought it was interesting because I knew you were coming on here. And then I'm like, wait a minute, she's telling me about this. And it was interesting, this article they released about people on dating apps or just dating in general, that they often try to take on the interest of the people they're interested in. So like they almost don't have their own uh, interest is oh somebody they see somebody they may like is says oh they like hiking or they like dancing then they may put on there they like hiking they like dancing for it even though it's not something they're really into and I found that was like really strange <laughs> that type of be I don't know what do you think about that well it's short term versus long term dating goals so if you want to feel and some people date because they have a core need to feel lovable. And so getting lots and lots of attention from the opposite sex fills that core need. I think a lot of pickup artists have a very deep sense of insecurity that they don't think any woman could love them or like them. And so they learn pickup techniques because they think I'm not good enough as I am. So I'm gonna learn all these techniques to manipulate these women into liking me and then I'm gonna feel better about myself. It's very ego-based. So right. there are a lot of techniques like, for example, turning yourself into the kind of person that the kind of person you want would like to date. There's lots of techniques like that that will get you that short-term dating interest. And when you get lots of attention from the opposite sex, it'll make you feel good about yourself. And that fulfills a short-term need. But for me, as someone who looks at dating advice from the angle of, okay, 15 years later, you're married, you've got kids, you've got a mortgage, you're fighting you hate each other, and a divorce is going to destroy your life. I kind of want to ask the question, how do we work backwards from there and make sure that doesn't happen? And right. of course, pretending to be someone you're not is the number one way of creating a relationship that's going to fail. Because at some point, they're going to find out you actually hate hiking. <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's a betrayal. <laughs> I, I have dated people who pretended they were into what I was into, and sometimes even kept up this pretense for maybe a year of a relationship. Then finally, year later, sometimes even longer than that, it comes out, they never 
liked doing this thing with me in the first place. And they've resented me all this time mm. because they have to pretend to do this to be with me. Whereas, oh, you know how much easier it would have been for it to come out in the beginning saying, that's your thing. It's not my thing. And that's okay. <laughs> totally true. I'm telling you, I have lived that, man, like on some level. But we had a resolution. My wife and I, when I met her, uh, she's really into like antique stores. And so she would go in there and I'm like, okay, I'll go in here. I'd never really been in it. I didn't really have an interest. And I, and I was clear I didn't really care when I was in there. It's like my body language and all this stuff. And she's like, do you not like going to these things? I was like, no, I really don't want to do this. But I was trying to be nice. This was like the first year we were married or whatever, you know. And then from then on, like, she said, you know what? It would be a lot more fun for me if I just went on my own and enjoyed it instead of worrying about it, like, if you like it also. And so, yeah, I think we, like, reestablished all these things, like, hey, I like going to museums, but uh, we might have to split up when we're in the museum because I don't want to read all the placards completely. I like to skim, and you like to read everything in, like, great detail. So maybe we'll just meet back at a certain time, different things, and there's some areas we'll do together. And it was, it was, it was very, we're always very honest about those types of things, but I think it can be difficult when you're trying to like do that constantly, even though you don't want to do it with somebody else, you know? Well, there's also a deep fear of, well, there's a deep misunderstanding of what compatibility actually is. People tend to think that compatibility means you like the same things, you listen to the same music, you want to go to the same movies. That's actually a very superficial kind of compatibility that really doesn't say much about your, your long-term compatibility. So if you want to find somebody that you can really be with forever, what you want to look at, like the number one thing you can look at is your fighting style. Do you both fight in a way that clears the air and makes you feel better afterwards? Or is this other person someone who shouts and you're someone who goes silent? Does that person walk away while you want to stick out there and hash it out to the, to the bitter end? And so <laughs> having mismatches in your fighting style will kill your relationship unless you can find a way to fight in a way that can resolve those issues. Because you're going you're gonna to fight. That's one of those big things in relationships is being able to fight in a way that's constructive and healthy rather than destructive. That's probably the main thing that's going to tell you whether your relationship is interesting. It's totally yeah. true. Totally true. I mean, I when you, when you've been married as long as I have, you're you're going to have some, you're going to have arguments. It's just you know, if you're in any any relationship where you care about somebody, there's going to be ups and downs. I, I have found for me that like I never cross the line where I say something like that I would regret. I never like give that over the top blow or say anything. But I'm also a very calm person. I never raise my voice when I get upset about stuff. I'm just very chill. And my wife has always been like she's a little more fiery, but over the years she's she's gotten a lot more chill. So it's more of like a very like it's not even a heated discussion. It's like this we disagree. I disagree about this. You disagree about this. Okay, what's the solution for this? It's like almost, it's very quaint in a way. It's weird. You know? it's, it's fantastic. No, I think yeah. one of the greatest skills people can get to is the point where they are screaming mad at their partner and they can stand there and say, I'm really mad at you right now. In yeah. calm, firm voice. Because what happens instead is people get screaming mad at their partner and they scream. They're not able to say, right, I own my feeling of anger and I need to communicate with you, and maybe I need to walk away and take a 20-minute break because I'm flooded. You know, there's there's so much to learn about 
healthy disagreements. One of the other wonderful things that the Gottmans have taught us is that most arguments a couple has are unresolvable. You can't fix them because they are based in basically irreconcilable differences. You and your partner are not the same. You're never going to agree on certain things. And couples who struggle keep having those fights and thinking that their relationship is at risk because they can't fix them. Whereas couples who succeed know that there are some things they're never going to disagree. They're never going to agree on. Right. And that's okay. They can just, they can agree to disagree. And, and that again brings us to another important point about couples. You don't have to be twins and you don't have to be clones. You can be <laughs> two separate people who come together where you can come together. And there are some places you can't, and that's okay. I think so. Totally, totally true. You know, before getting back to that, the, this whole compatibility thing is, is, is kind of a, a, a high point. I wanted to discuss a little more because I think you're totally right. You're on to something clearly. I think people have the compatibility thing all backwards. So when you're thinking about compatibility with somebody, what are the, what are the really deep underpinning things that you need to be looking for to, to be compatible with another person, not these superficial things? One of the things I love, so there's this lovely psychotherapist called Ken Page. He's one of the few gay psychotherapists writing out their uh, dating advice. And I really appreciate that because, like I said, I think same-sex couples are a little bit ahead of us in the understanding of some of this mm. stuff. And one of the distinctions he makes are between attractions of inspiration and attractions of deprivation. And so how many times have you heard people say, if there's not that physical chemistry, you got to move on because it just doesn't right. even, you know, you can't make it happen if you don't have that physical spark. Well, it turns out that when you chase the physical spark and when you prioritize it, especially if you've just had one date with somebody, the chances are you're leading to attractions of deprivation. And these are people you're attracted to because you think that having them makes you better. You're, you're less of a person because you're single. And so you need to get that person. That person's always slightly out of reach. So you got to work harder. You got to be better. You got to do more things that they like. You got to send the right text. You got to look the right way. You got to hustle for their attention. And that is not the kind of relationship you want. You don't want to go meet the person who turns you on and you think they're so good and you have to have them. Chances are that's a relationship maybe to step back from because it's, it's, it's a different form of attraction. What you want to be looking for, this is the mature kind of attraction, <laughs> is people who inspire you. If you go out on a date with somebody and you think, man, this person has lived an amazing life. I really like their values. I like the way that they take time to help other people. They seem really kind. That is the sort of person you want to go on a second and a third and a fourth. They would get to know them. It's going to be slow burning. You might not even have that chemical reaction to them until you've known them for a couple months. But these are people worth having in your life because they, the feeling you get when you're with them is inspiration. You think, that person, I admire what that person's done with their life. They don't make you, like with the attractions of deprivation, they make you feel less than. You know, I'm not good enough. I got to work to get this person. No, don't follow those. Follow the people that inspire you, who have val good values and who treat people really, really well. Those are the sort of people you can have a lifetime with.
I love that phrase, uh, mature attraction. I'm pretty sure I've never heard that before. Um, because you just, you know, you hear about attraction is attraction. You know, you have this physical attraction, whatever. But mature attraction, I think that's something that you can bite. You know, you can really taste, oh, man, I, I could take that. What does mature attraction look like? And I think sometimes I often see that people maybe sometimes develop a more mature attraction towards other people as they've gotten older in their life. And uh, they're not so stuck on the physical aspects of it. But then I think now I'm seeing with a lot, I know so many young people that they're not looking at it from the approach also of a lifelong thing. They're not even thinking about marriage. You know, a lot of millennials are not, they're waiting a really long time or they're just not interested in that aspect. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, it's wonderful they have that choice. Because, you know, 50 years ago, women didn't have that choice, especially women. Men did. Women didn't. Basically, <laughs> uh, you had to be marriage minded. Otherwise, you were facing poverty. You were facing never moving out of your family home. So I think it's absolutely wonderful that marriage is a choice and not necessarily something that's going to happen for everyone. I think that's great. Because I also believe that marriage is only one form of a relationship. I think that Every single person out there has a choice to define what relationship feels good, what relationship works for them. For some people, it will be a more traditional marriage, but for other people, it will be uh, a series of monogamous relationships, long-term monogamous relationships. And we have that choice, and it's great. So one of the interesting things about millennials, though, they, uh, they may not, they're definitely not getting married, you're right, but they still believe in love. Yeah. I think that's really important because when we look at marriage, what we're looking at is some very old-fashioned roles that people are playing. We're also looking at marriage as uh, tax breaks. Marriage has legal ramifications. I think it's really good to separate marriage from love. Marriage is a structure. It's a legal structure. It's because uh, the government has it you know, in the tax codes. It's a financial structure, but it has nothing to do with love and connection. And I think as long as millennials keep love and connection first and then realize whatever form that takes is optional, I think they're going to I think they're going to do better than their parents. <laughs> I, th I think it could be a good thing. Honestly, I you know, I I know several people in my life who marriage is not on the table for them. It's just not their thing. They don't want to do it. Um, I mean, you never know what people but. You know, as far as, you know, the regular consistent conversation, it's just not part of their, they don't want to do it. And I think in, in the past, you know, you would get this parental pressure, like when are you going to, you know, meet a nice woman or a nice partner or whatever, and you need to get married and stuff. And I, I think like, I have an eight-year-old daughter. I'm not pushing it either way. If she wants to get married, that's great. If she doesn't, oh, well, you know, it's, it's her life. It's not my life that, you know, for her to, to live and who she should be with and things of that nature. The most fabulous thing that we have to all realize as women, this isn't men, but for women, is that we, this is a brand new choice. We should be so grateful. We have, I have the option to live on my own and have my own life, have, have a ch child without having to be married. And I, I can't tell you how new this is because even back in the past when, um, you know, some people married, some people that didn't, the people who didn't get married often ended up living with their parents for the rest of their life. Right. I don't know of any other time in human history where single women 
have been able to live their lives, get jobs, be financially sustainable, get credit, buy a house without having any man attached to their name or their legal identity. This is a miracle. And I think all women should take advantage of it. (laughs) I think it's incredible, actually. I think it's, we're living in a very revolutionary time where things are changing at such a quick pace. Um, But it's interesting, I think about, I often think I've I've been married so long, what would dating be like currently? Um, And it just seems like, I met my wife on Match.com actually. So I was into it like before it was very popular and before the, you know, increase in all these tremendous dating apps apparently that are out there and all that. And I just wonder what that world must be like in today's form of it. You know, what is, what is the history of dating and how has it changed over the course of our time? Well, the fascinating thing is dating is very much um, a very recent thing in history. I would say dating is only about, in its current form, it's only about 100 years old. Mm-hmm. So dating is new because before the invention of dating, what happened was uh, the man and the woman would be living with their families and the man would come around calling. He would give the card to, you know, and would the lady come see him? And then they would sit in a room. They would be chaperoned. So before the last hundred years, courtship was really in the hands of uh the parents, you know, it was the men were judged very much. Are you a suitable um, suitor for my daughter? And then what happened was we had the Industrial Revolution, of course, and we had a lot of young people flooding into the cities to find jobs because there was no work where they were at. So when they came into the cities, some of them lived with uh, relatives. A lot of them lived in boarding houses. So you had all these young people in the prime of their lives, unmarried, who were free from parental supervision for the first time mm-hmm. ever. And so what they would do, they didn't have um, a room in their house to receive a man. So the women would go out in the streets, and the men would be out in the streets, and they would hang out in the streets, and they would talk. At this time, <laughs> there was huge gender discrimination in wages. There was the perception that a man had a family to sustain, so he got paid, and a woman was just making a little money on the side. So... Men and women were both working, but the men were making a lot more. than the, the women could barely live on their wages. So if a woman wanted to have a little treat, go have an ice cream, go to the amusement park, she didn't have the money, she would get friendly with a guy, and the guy would treat her. He would take her to the amusement park, take her to the movies. Sometimes there were sexual relationships involved. And so the in the very beginning of dating, dating was considered no different from prostitution. It was an exchange. Wow. The man is giving the woman a treat like an ice cream or, you know, a trip to the music park in exchange for her time, according to the police. And sometimes they were sleeping together. That's prostitution. So they, they actually arrested people for dating in the very beginning of dating. So, I mean, this is, this is, I love this stuff. So, why do we now have this tradition then that men pay? It all dat- dates back to, like I said, the very beginning where men paid because of wage discrimination. It was not that the women weren't working just as hard as the men. They weren't getting paid enough. So there was that imbalance. So when we look at that today, and then, of course, fast forward now, one of the great things about dating is, of course, that you do it on your own. Your parents aren't involved. Uh you know, you can choose what you want to do. You tend to go out and have fun. And so what I like about 
dating apps is that it, it we, we don't have those common places. So it, like I said, 100 years ago, they went out on the street. Everybody congregated on the street. They chatted, and that's how relationships formed. They had a place to meet. And, you know, for a lot of the last 100 years, there were community places to meet. You met at the dance hall. That was one of the biggest places people right. met apart. The dance hall, the church, people were coming together. Today in America, especially in America, we go from our apartments into our cars, into our offices, back into our cars, back into our houses. We don't congregate with a lot of singles. This is why so many people find that they leave college and they can't ever date again because college is one of those great places where singles can congregate. Great for dating. But once you leave college, there's no, and you don't, especially if you don't like the bar scene, there's nowhere to go to meet people. So this is how dating apps have come in. Dating apps are basically feeling the function that the street used to feel a hundred years ago. So there's nothing weird or unusual about dating apps. They're just filling a need that has gone away because our society has gotten so closed. We just don't have a sense of community anymore. So I think dating apps are great. They are, they have the same risks that these um, young people moving in from the country to the city had a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, uh, when these young people, these young people had the protections of the family before they moved to the city because in the family, their family would be looking at, you know, is this man a good suitor for my daughter? They would know the young man's history. They would ask the young man questions. The family would take responsibility for making sure that this person was a suitable candidate. Once the young men and women ended up in the cities together with, you know, they moved from wherever they used to live, there's, there was no way of vetting that young man or vetting that young woman. You didn't know their family. Your family didn't know anything about them. You knew nothing about them aside from what they told you, and they could be lying. That's exactly what happens today on dating apps. Like I said, this is a hundred-year problem. This isn't uh, not knowing who the guy is on the dating app, who this girl is. It's been a problem since the beginning of dating. And the reason we have that problem is because our parents aren't vetting these people for us. And you know what? I think that's a great exchange. I'm just, yeah. I'm happy to be in charge if it means of taking on a little risk. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, the... The, you know, looking at the the, the relationship of, uh, you know, comparison of the streets versus now it's a dating app, you know, and I think a lot of people don't think about it uh, that way. You know, the college thing is pretty interesting because I think there's a lot of relationships of, of convenience in college. Everybody's there. Everybody's young. You know, everybody's kind of going towards the same thing in general. And as soon as you're out of that, like your pool shrinks dramatically, at least in your mind, and sometimes true, you know, within the physical population. And it can be hard. And I know a lot of people who date these days, and they, they think it's very difficult to date in, the, in today's current society, especially with now with people on dating apps. It's like if you meet somebody and physically and you see them, you're like, okay, this is what you look like. But then on a dating app or thing, somebody can alter how they look on a picture and things of that nature. And so it can become a little more confusing when it's like, is that really the person? Are they, you know, these filters um, that people put on things? I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I think people sometimes uh, make it harder for themselves than necessary because they invest too much time in building a relationship online. The only purpose of a dating app is to establish some baseline level of comfort and then you need to meet in person. So I remember back in the days of these uh, 
these they weren't even dating apps and they were dating websites you would end up chatting with people from they live so far away you could never possibly meet them but oh it was nice to have this little conversation it was like flirting from a distance it was safe it was by text you just had that guy's picture today we don't have time for that sort of thing if you are chatting with a guy you're never going to meet you're wasting your time <laughs> so it, and two, you know, I realize with women, there's an issue of safety, but there's a lot of ways you can protect yourself with these things. The number one way a woman can protect herself is to never, ever give out her mobile phone number unless she's seen the guy at least once or twice and she knows that there's potential. Do not give out your phone number, ladies, ever. Yeah. That's, that's because it also opens you up to receiving unwanted images. Uh, so just, so just don't do it. Stay <laughs> on the dating app. I, I wanted images. Image, the best the images. <laughs> okay, listen, listen. Now you said it, and I know what you mean. <laughs> what is what is okay? We're gonna keep it clean. But what is it with the unwanted images? I thank you for everybody out there. You know, really graphic unwanted images. What is with that? So I I actually recently did uh, did some research on this. So. If you ask women what their view of these unwanted images is, they say things like gross, disgusting, pathetic, idiotic. If you ask men what are the top words they would use to describe these images, 32% would call them gross, but 30% would call them sexy. <laughs> so men are sending these images in, at least 18% of men are sending these images because they think the images are really quite Great. They're wow. really proud of what they're sending. So that is one of those things where, unfortunately, there's a lot of men out there who don't have a clue. So what men are trying to do, uh, in large part, is they are trying to do one of two things. Number one, they're trying to uh, get you to... So a man sends a picture to, you, to a woman. He wants her to say, Oh, look at how wonderful your attributes are. I'd love to come out on a date with you. He actually thinks sending the image is going to make her more likely to want to date him. The other thing he's trying to do is he would love to get an unwanted image from a woman. So he thinks, gosh, I'll just make this all easy. I'll be the first one to send her an image of my beautiful body parts. And then she'll reciprocate by sending me an image of her beautiful body parts. And it'll just be wonderful. <laughs> So it is really important to realize there is a about 15% of guys are sending these images to harass women and because they're misogynistic. But mm -hmm. the vast bulk of men are sending these images because they think that this is a wonderful way to get what they want, which is wow. some sort of connection. So, so, so for ladies, I, I totally agree if you take offense, but also just um, recognize these guys, they really really may not have bad intentions at all. They really may think that they're doing you a favor. <laughs> that's unbelievable. Honestly, that's unbelievable. A dude sending a picture of his genitalia and he thinks, well, this is just sexy to me. I mean, this is like, you should want, want me after this. <laughs> and one of the things they say is it, it's, uh, it's um, age, it differs by age. So the people sending these images are, are 18 to 35 is the bulk of them. After 35, it drops off. And one of the reasons they believe it is, is because uh, young men between 18 and 35, their first um, exposure to this sort of thing was with porn on the right. internet. And so they are so used to seeing explicit images, it's become normalized for them. They really don't see anything wrong with it. Whereas older generations, 
um, were not as exposed, and therefore they don't tend to exchange pictures like that as much. Oh my gosh, you just hit on something that I literally just had a conversation about a month ago. Direct. I mean, I must be. I'm having weird conversations pretty regularly, so you know, it's just kind of. You know, one of my uh, friends, again, another professional in the world of psychology, she was mentioning that a lot of her current research is on that generational 18 to 35 year old behavior and their tremendous amount of uh, access to porn mm -hmm. and how they see they are not really stimulated or aroused in primary unless they're having porn. Around. Mm -hmm. Like they have a hard time with an actual person of of going through with the act because they're not stimulated because it's not porn for them. Have Have you seen? Have you heard of this? I mean, this is I oh. find this fascinating to me. One of the horrible statistics is the average age a young person encounters those sorts of images is twelve. Twelve. So most young people are getting their first exposure to sex via porn because they're all on the internet and it is rewiring boys brains girls often click away for whatever reason they're not the re the way they're getting affected by it is when they have their first sexual experiences usually with with boys their own age we'll say they're teenagers the boys will be asking for sex acts they've seen in porn on these girls who've never even been intimate with anyone before. Right. So one of the horrible things is that girls now have normalized different sex acts as part of their normal repertoire. When really, I, I'm going to be honest, I think with sex, you should be starting out with ABC. You know, okay, let's start with kissing. Let's master kissing. Okay, let's go yes. down to, you know... Fully clothed groping. Okay, now let's move on. I am a firm believer that you go through stages and then you get more comfortable with each stage. Only then do you move on to the next. I think it's it's terrible that uh, oral sex has now become the common, the, one of really popular thing among young people because you can't get pregnant. Well, I think that's wonderful for adults. I think it's, it's everybody should have that in their repertoire. Yeah, sure. But I do worry that young girls in particular are not having that choice to slowly and comfortably move through their sexual education because boys have sped it up through uh, through watching porn. This is crazy. <laughs> Stuff's like oh. mind-blowing You stuff. have a daughter, I have a daughter. It's scary. It scares the hell out of me. I'm telling mm -hmm. you, like, I look at my daughter, she's eight, and I go, man, I can't even imagine her being out there yeah, but all, I mean, any, you know, father, daughters, mother, daughters, you know, whatever. It's scary to me, man. It's really scary. I'm like, man, she's getting older. We're going to have to confront these things. And the access these kids have to porn now and stuff, there's phones and stuff. It's just kind of crazy. And it's how, how they see intimate relationships through this. It's pretty messed up, I think. So I have, this has been an issue for me because of the industry I'm in for ever since she was born, I started asking these questions. The first question was, what do we call her girl parts? You know, do we use the anatomically correct name so that she grows up from being a baby knowing exactly what those names are? It's different from nose and eyes, right? right. So I have gone through, I've interviewed people on my show about how we can abuse proof for children. This is a real issue for me. So some of the things I've done, I'll just uh, go through two. One of the most important things has been teaching her 
the proper names for her genitals and also how the reproductive system works. So there's a wonderful book. Uh, I think it's for six-year-olds called It's Not the Stork. And it very, it, it teaches kids about sex and genitals and the differences between boy bodies and girl bodies in a very age-appropriate way. And there's actually, uh, it's it's in a series. So you can, if your kid's older, you can get the one for the older kids. Okay. Uh, what I love about the one for the older kids, it even goes into, she, my daughter learned about what transgender meant. It mm -hmm. talks about how girls can um, have romantic relationships with girls. So it, it really gives kids from a very young age the ability to talk about sex without being squeamish. Unfortunately, when I was a young person, I didn't get that talk until puberty. Because the idea is you don't talk to kids about sex until they're actually at the stage where there might be some likelihood of it. It's too late by then. I you agree. need to talk to your kids well before puberty and you need to normalize anatomically correct words for things. And I actually learned this from um, a woman who does teach parents how to abuse proof kids. She said, kids who can say, name what they're seeing are much less likely to be abused because it puts abusers off. And also if they do get abused, when they tell police what happens, they can exactly explain exactly what parts of the body were involved because they've got the correct name for it. So that that's one piece of the puzzle. But the other piece of the puzzle is my favorite word of all is consent. There has been, there was a, a funny thing that happened a couple, I don't know if it was last year, the year before, where a woman was saying that we needed to ask babies for consent before touching them to change their diapers. And it went <laughs> off into this big <laughs> debate because what a ridiculous thing to say. Of right. course, you don't need to ask the baby's permission to change their diaper. But what she was getting at, she was taken out of context, what she was getting at, which is very important is, Children need to understand that they have the right to say no if if even their parent or a doctor is touching a part of their body that doesn't feel good or that they don't want to. You get used to, when your child's a baby, touching them everywhere, not thinking anything right. of it. But as they get older, sometimes you forget that your child actually is in charge of their own body. So one of the great things you can do is... Um, if your child is becoming a toddler, you know, they can understand language now. Say, um, you know, is it okay if I wipe your bottom now? Or I'm just going to touch you right here. Does that hurt? Is that okay? Making sure that your kid knows that actually they can say, no, mommy, I don't want you to do that. And you say, okay, that's fine. So I am teaching my daughter, you know, my body, my business, that sort of thing. But the <laughs> yeah. fact that she has control over her body, things like, here's another great example, tickle games. Every parent loves tickling the kids. Right. But one great way of teaching consent is the moment they say stop, even if it's a playful stop and they don't mean it, you stop immediately. Yes. And you wait for them to give you permission till they start again. And so they start to realize that saying, no, no, stop. Even if they say it in a funny way, you're going to stop. So maybe they stop because sometimes, unfortunately, in infant relationships, women say no, 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 whereas actually the guy can tell they actually mean yes, but what's coming out is the word no, and it's confusing for everybody. So right. right now from this young age, my daughter is having to navigate the fact that even if she says stop, she probably shouldn't say stop because I will actually stop. So maybe that isn't something to say, oh, stop in fun if she, you know, maybe find some other, some other word to say. But also she needs to know that Anytime, like we're playing or cuddling, giving your kid a hug, they don't want to hug, back away. Don't make your kids kiss or hug anyone. 
they don't want to kiss or hug. And when we teach them this stuff at a very young age, they embody consent. They know exactly what it is because their parents have been practicing it with them all their life. And they're not going to have any problem being in a relationship with uh, a boy trying to kiss a girl, a girl saying, stop. She's used to people stopping. He doesn't stop. Man, that's going to turn on her. I am furious at you. I'm getting out of here because she knows in her bones that he's violated consent. Wow. I tell you what, there's a lot to unpack in everything you've been talking about. This is like seriously amazing stuff, like crazy good stuff. I think so much of what people, people are going out there and they're dating and they're getting in relationships with people. And a lot of times they just haven't experienced healthy relationships or healthy boundaries within relationships and how you argue appropriately and all that. And man, and, uh, you know, if you go to Scotland, you go to New Year's, uh, don't let a bunch of people kiss you, though. Uh, probably not the best <laughs> idea. I'm just saying. I, I don't know. And I don't even know if they're, like, kissing you on the lips or so on the cheek. I, I don't want it at a big festival, you know. <laughs> amazing. You know, and that was all I'll say is that was, you know, 1998. The world has changed. But um, today I would be able to say no. And I couldn't back yeah. then, but I would say no today. Yeah, today is different. Back then, it could have been a slob, slob fest. I mean, it could have been like just, hey, I'm here. Okay, you know, it's, <laughs> but man, uh, crazy, well, I crazy would just times. say it's so interesting as a woman when Me Too came out to suddenly look back through my past and realize all of the things that I accepted as normal, being forcibly kissed, having strange men grab my bottom. Wow, these were all things I. I felt ashamed of, like somehow I brought him on myself. And the wonderful thing about me too is for the first time in my life as a 40 something year old woman, I realized that wasn't okay. And I no. didn't actually quite realize that before. So I, I know that it's been tough for a lot of people, but for women like me to realize that actually what was done to me wasn't okay, I think it was, it was very affirming. It's really helped me a lot. Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, I think there's, you got to have boundaries and sometimes especially guys it just they think you just do whatever they want to do i mean i i've been around in situations where guys have been really inappropriate and you know it's this is way back in the day and i've been like dude why are you doing that like that's totally not appropriate what's the matter with you and they're like oh whatever you know and then you got to have boundaries got to have consequences for poor behavior i'm a big consequence person accountability person i'm like and I think it's hard sometimes when people see people in um, pop culture or whatever, and they say, man, just because a person's talented, why did they get all these chances? Where's the consequences of these behaviors for that? And I always tell people, you know, I, I can't, you can't control how other people are giving out consequences in these large stages, but in your own life, you can control that a lot. Of, if there's something going on and you shouldn't be doing it, you know, there, you need to, you need to make sure that you're involved in the process of, hey, am I acting accordingly uh, in here? Am I in, Am I willing to take the consequences? I think a lot of people don't think about consequences before they do yeah. things. They just do stuff. People are always just doing stuff. I've heard that from so many people. I say, why'd you do that? I don't know. I just wanted to do it. Really? <laughs> like, you just do stuff? That's how you live your life? You just do things? I'm like, man, you can slap with uh, unintended consequences constantly then. <laughs> That's the, you know. Well, I'm going to be honest, I think that helps with online dating too when women know their boundaries and know they can enforce them. Like for example, it takes a lot of bravery 
to stand up in the middle of a first date and say, um, I'm not comfortable with this. It was nice being you, but I'm leaving now. Right. How many women have walked out on a first date? Probably not that many, but I can't be every that much. single date you go on, you have the right to decide whether that's going to continue. And if you feel uncomfortable, you can actually get up and leave. But the reason so many women don't, maybe they're afraid of the, they're afraid of him getting violent, becoming a stalker. Mm. So there's, this is one of the most important things. We women have to get a lot more comfortable with uh, asserting our boundaries and having consequences and also staying safe when we do assert those boundaries. Wow. Amy, I got to tell you, you're the truth. I mean, you, 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 I'm so glad I met you. It's just uh, amazing information and incredible insight into the history of dating. I literally had no clue. I mean, I haven't dated in forever. Clearly, I've been married forever. But <laughs> Um, this would have been good insight when I was dating <laughs> back in like the early 2000s. Uh, but man, you don't I know, you say know. this, but your daughter's gonna start dating, and I think you know, no, I know it's gonna happen. Like, man, I think you're trying to put instill these good values into yeah. her and and uh, really be a good example. I think my wife and I's relationship and our marriage, we're trying to be a good example of what that might look like for her in the future of what she will accept if she wants to get into a marriage with, you know, and uh, hopefully we'll see. But at some point, you know, they go and do their own thing. You know, it's, uh, you know, they're going to roll yeah. out and do their, live their life. And, uh, you know, you got to see, hey, hopefully it works out, you know. But I agree with you. I think being a role model is the number one thing you can do for your child. Absolutely. And not just in the role model in your relationship. One of the, the shocking things for me, and I didn't ever realize this when I was studying what makes a marriage work. We studied things like uh, communication and negotiation. And I assumed I would be putting all of those skills into practice with uh, my life partner someday. What I didn't realize is that when you learn those marriage skills, but actually, you're not just learning how to apply them to the romantic mm -hmm. partner in your life. All of those skills you're learning about boundaries, about communication, you can apply to every single relationship in your life, including your relationship with your kids. When you have a respectful relationship with your kids where you allow your kids to have boundaries and you communicate through your problems, then uh, that child is going to think, wow, this is how people treat each other. How yeah. daddy treats me is the way uh, all men are going to treat me. And she takes that as normal. And so when men don't treat her that way, she's like, hey, I know that's wrong. And I'm not going to stay around to tolerate it. Yeah. That's the hope anyway. That is the hope. I saw that with my parents, you know, still in a very loving relationship 45 years later in a marriage. And I, I remember thinking when I was growing up, I want what they have. I want that. I want that stability. I want that love, that long-term, meaningful uh, relationship. And it, they drove me in my, you know, choosing of a partner uh, for that. And so I can, I understand, I can, I can understand, but I could see how somebody, if they never had those examples or they've been exposed to just really a toxic relationships on a regular basis, may be very difficult to identify what a good relationship would actually be like for it. So Yeah. And if you haven't ever had one, just try and choose attractions of inspiration, not attractions of deprivation. So choose relationships with people who bowl you over with their kindness and their big heart and the integrity with which they live their life. Ignore 
the people that you date that make you feel not worthy and less than and like you have to hustle for their love. Those are the wrong people. The right people are people that you admire the kind of person they are. And with that, that's going to be it because what a way to end it off. Totally true. I'm totally into it. I'm totally into this conversation completely. And thank you, Amy, so much for your time. Great advice. And I can't wait for people to hear this. It's going to be pretty cool. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Darren. I really enjoyed talking to you. Same here. Have a great rest of your day. Any workout, any mood, any time. That's what the Peloton Tread is all about. From interval runs that motivate you to go the extra mile, power walks that work up a sweat, rolling hill hikes for you to enjoy, and full body boot camps to hit your goals. Plus thousands of workouts that go beyond the tread. Strength programs, core classes, yoga, Pilates, and even boxing. Everything you need on and off the Peloton Tread. Experience it all for yourself with a 30-day home trial. Learn more at OnePeloton.com. What does it take to uncover sustainable investments? It takes robust proprietary research, disciplined investment principles, and a commitment to responsibility. In short, it takes fidelity. Because when it comes to your portfolio and the world, no detail is too small. Fidelity. We bring clarity to sustainability. Visit fidelity.com sustainable to learn more. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC.